Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we are connecting you to Cub founding member, Chris King, the founder and CEO of Splend, which is a company that you probably have used but didn't realize. Splend owns and provides the vehicles for rideshare drivers uh, for platforms such as Uber and many others. Chris and Splend own over 2,000 cars and have launched offices in Mexico, Canada, the UK, and all over Australia. We hear Chris's entire story from how he started from just one car to becoming an international organization, how we raised capital and expanded, how we handled COVID and the silver linings and lessons that came from it. Enjoy the show. Mate, welcome back for round two. We did the first episode together, which which never aired. I can't actually remember why it never aired. But this one's going to be even fucking better. And we had a false start. We had a false start. That's exactly <laughs> what we did. But um, welcome back, Kingy. And pleasure, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Mate, I don't think I know anyone that actually owns more cars than you do. How many cars do you currently have in your company? Do you own? Uh, just over a couple of thousand. Just over 2,000 cars? Yep. yep. Jeez. And that's taken how long? How long since you started the company? Uh, we just had our sixth birthday. Gee, so to, how many cars? I can't do maths that fast. But how many cars is that a year? It's it's a fair few. You're buying yeah, a few. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of metal. Uh, Kingy, what I want to do today is share with our listeners the story of one of our or one of my great friends uh, and the story of one of our longest standing uh, members. Yeah, what, what year did you join the club? Uh, 2016, early 2016. Yeah. And you're from Perth. So you came to Sydney. How far, how much before joining Cub did you move to Sydney from Perth? I moved from Perth to Sydney mid 2012. Mm -hmm. And, and did you, had you started the business at that point? No, no. We started the business mid 2015. Okay. Well, why don't we introduce Splend anyway? And what exactly it does? Because right now everyone just thinks you own heaps of cars, but (laughs) let's explain to them why. Yeah. Uh, so Splend uh, provides vehicle and support services to drivers uh, that work for on-demand apps, mm-hmm. uh, rideshare apps like Uber and delivery apps. Um, we started, uh, as I mentioned, uh, just over six years ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, we came across a problem uh, and it was when Uber was really starting to take off in, in Sydney and Australia. Uh, and the problem was there was a shortage of drivers um, and ultimately that came from, you know, a lot of uh, drivers – didn't have cars, so they couldn't be drivers on those platforms. The earnings were fantastic, um, but they didn't have a car or they had a car that wasn't optimised for uh, for rideshare. So uh, on the base, back of that, um, the idea was born to solve that problem uh, and then uh, launched a pilot, put a few cars on the road uh, and then very quickly realised there was significant demand there and it was predominantly for people that wanted a, a job and an employment opportunity um, they wanted to be drivers, but they didn't have a car or access to the right car. Um, and ultimately, if you look at sort of how the you know the car market is set up and the auto finance industry, um, to be able to get a car, usually you have to get finance. I think around ninety five percent plus of new cars are financed in Australia, and a lot of second hand cars. Uh, and ultimately, they you know a lot of those old school financiers um, do a cookie cutter approach to getting uh, finance. You've got to, you know, give us your pay slips, how long you've been employed for, 
um, you know, uh, how much do you earn, et cetera, et cetera. When you want to become a rideshare driver and you may be a new, um, uh, a new immigrant to Australia, you may have bad credit, you may have, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, had issues in the past, whatever it may be, um, you know, we're able to help them get, uh, get a vehicle and help them earn and maximise their earnings through sort of underwriting credit in an untraditional way. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, from there the, the business was born uh, and it was all about how we can help our, our customers, uh, our members maximise their earnings uh, and use that as a real um, point of difference. So basically you provide the cars and, and essentially with that the drivers for platforms like Uber. Yeah, so we provide the cars to the drivers. There's you know there's two two sides of the business. There's the car side, and then how we help our our customers, uh, our members, uh, who are the drivers. Really drivers. You know, we really want to help them maximise their earnings uh, where possible by knowing you know what apps to use, what areas, what hours to drive, um, because you can actually earn really good money if you've got the information data. and the data. Um, whereas if you don't, like with any job, if you don't get training or support. Um, you know, a lot of people would, may, may struggle in, in any job, whether it be a driver or anything else. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, I know you, I know the business technically provides just the cars, but like you're saying, Uber was lacking drivers. Yeah. And they were lacking drivers because not enough people could actually get the cars. Correct. Yeah. And so by. But there, was, the cars, but there was plenty of cars around. Like there were lots of cars being manufactured, and there wasn't a there wasn't a shortage of cars. And was so the issue was the fi- the finance. Yeah, the finance people couldn't finance their cars. Yes, the finance, and also, but also, we found that a lot of people, even if they had their own car, so they've already got a car, and they say they've already got finance, or they've uh, you know bought it outright, or whatever the case may be, they they weren't earning good money, and they were saying, oh, this is terrible, and they were they were quitting and getting another job. That's because they didn't have your data or information on where to drive, what time to drive. Correct, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you treat it like a a, uh, sort of a regular office job, nine to five, Monday to Friday, you won't earn very good money. But obviously when you're going, oh, yeah, I might give this a try and you don't know what hours to work or what areas, you may do nine to five and then after a while, you know, after a few weeks you go, this this is terrible. So so basically platforms like Uber love you because not only are you giving them more cars – you're actually telling, and and therefore more drivers. You're actually telling their drivers when to drive, when when the most demand is in which area. So you're making the pl- you're actually optimizing Uber. Yeah, in yeah, a sense. yeah. It's it's a win win. I mean, you know, overall, you know, our customers win because they should have higher earnings. Um, we've got uh, Uber and the platforms win, and the passengers on the platforms because there's cars available when they when they need it. And then obviously, you know, we've got a a really good business. Uh, it's a win-win-win. So yeah. And what's your model though? Are you financing the cars or are you renting the cars? We finance so do the, the drivers cars. Own them. We we, they- we charge a weekly subscription fee that includes not just the car, the hard metal, but then you've got the registration, the licensing, um, the maintenance, the you insurance. Pay that. It's we part, obviously their membership fee pays. Yeah, correct. They pay a, a weekly fee that includes all of that, mm-hmm. and then we take care of it for them. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, do they end up owning the car, or are they renting? It's it, they, uh, it's right. like a, it's like a car. But it's like they're they're paying for a membership. Part of that membership is instead of getting networking, they get a car. Yeah, and after four years, though, on a rent to own plan, which is our flagship plan, you get to own the car. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so you also do that? Correct. Yeah. That's that's and that's the predominant plan that we offer. Okay. And so that started six years ago. Fuck. We almost started at the same time. But you joined Cub in what year again? You said early two thousand sixteen. We launched what 2015 October. So you joined in the first six months. So we've really started. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're really at the same time. Oh, I don't have two thousand cars. <laughs> I don't even have two thousand members yet. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, soon, soon. 
And so you've got two, uh, over 2,000 cars now. We're going to talk about it, but I know you've, you, you've expanded internationally as well and uh, you've raised millions and millions of dollars and you've done, I don't know how big your team is now, but I, I know it's very large. Anyway, my point is the company's become quite substantial and, and I would imagine, but are you the biggest uh, in the space in the sense of not car rentals because I know there's some monsters out there, conglomerates, European and American, but uh, – are you the biggest in the, I guess, would you call ride share provide space? Yeah, in the sector, yeah. In the sector. Yeah, providing uh, vehicles and support services uh, for ride share and, and delivery platforms. Okay. Yep. And so- um, Across and Australia you, and the UK. And so you moved to Sydney to follow this venture. Is that correct? Or did you move- No, no, no. Sydney's what I was, better than Perth. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I think for business, and if you're not in mining um, or other specialised industries in Perth- uh, you know, Sydney's the epicenter of the Australian economy. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, with the previous venture I was doing, we moved to Sydney mid-2012. Um, and then, uh, so that was before starting Splend. Oh, you moved before yeah, starting yeah, Splend? Yeah, yeah. What was that What, what was that business? Uh, family business. It was an electrical services company. Yep. And we, uh, we took the business, uh, originally started in Perth, expanded around Australia, and then relocated the head office from Perth to Sydney. Okay, and that's yep. why you came. Correct. And I can't remember if this is correct or not, but – we'll have a drink of yours once and you were telling me this. What not that – isn't – you were doing something in that business or something that happened in that business helped you come up with Splend? Yeah, yeah. So in that business, we uh, – it was electrical services. We had a lot a lot of electricians in vans across Australia and we were ramping up and, you know, uh, we uh, we had to buy lots of vans, small vans, um, maintain a lot of vans and sell a lot of vans just as by nature of the, the business. So – uh, in my role there, I got to really, you know, finesse, um, you know, that that cost model and understanding how, uh, you know, how, how cars work and how you finance cars and operate cars, run cars, dispose of them. But how do you go from that? Because you said, oh, yeah, we saw a gap in the market. Uber was looking for drivers. How did you know Uber was looking for drivers before you started the business? Uh, right. You know, how, so how did you actually Look, get at, the idea? This as, shit, as, 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 a, as, a, as a passenger. So, I mean, I was on Uber very early on. Uh, there were some people I knew that were some of Uber's first employees uh, in Australia. So I was on Uber very early on as a passenger, saw the evolution, and then, uh, and then saw there was a shortage of drivers because, you know, when I tried to order one, I couldn't get one. And then when I got one, um, you know, it was surge pricing and expensive and you'd speak to a lot of drivers and they were earning very good money, uh, the ones that had a car, but then the car they had, uh, you know, was like the Ford, Ford Falcon or the Holden Commodore which are not bad cars, but when you're a rideshare driver, they use a lot of fuel, a lot of uh, heavy costs on maintenance. And originally, before we put cars on the road, it was, oh, I think we can, uh, you know, we can uh, put some cars on the road that can actually help existing drivers save some money with the knowledge that I built up and understanding on how to, you know, buy, maintain and sell cars. So that's how originally the sort of the idea started fermenting. And yeah. what made you pull the trigger? So what, when did it get to the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to uh, leave this family business. I'm going to start a business on my own. Did you always want to start a business or did you want to stay in a family business? What was your ambitions yeah. as a, as a, as a well, kid? You're pretty young now. Well, yeah, you now? It, 32, 34. 32, yeah. 32. Yeah. And, and so when you were a kid, when you are a teenager anyway, did you always want to start your own business or what was the ambition? I did, and I actually did did start a few businesses before uh, joining the family business. I never actually thought I'd join the family business, um, and uh, so yeah, like when I was you know, finishing high school and uh, just started uh, university, I had a crack at a few businesses, um, both myself and then with some uh, with some friends, uh, doing a few things, and um, 
And that led me down to an interesting route. I actually went in the, into the political, down the political road and I thought I was, you know, interested in getting into politics. And then what happened from there is, uh, you know, I, I sort of learned that politics wasn't for me. Um, you know, I think our political system's good, all things considered, but, uh, you know, I was more hungry for business and commerce and thought I could make, a, you know, more of an impact and a difference to society operating a business in your specific industry than, you know, being a politician which is obviously across, you've got to be across everything, right? Um, but it was interesting, the experience with working for the politicians, I worked for the Minister for Transport in Western Australia and the state government, and one of the hot, uh, hot potato topics was taxis. There was a shortage of taxis. And I just saw how the industry had evolved and worked. They had these taxi plates that were worth all this money. And you had to buy the licences. Yeah, and here's me, you know, fresh set of eyes coming in, uh, you know, still at uni, finishing uni off going, geez, this doesn't make any sense. Why are these pieces of metal worth money? It doesn't make any sense at all. There's a shortage of taxis, but then you can't just go issue more plates because then the people that own the plates, their value might go down. So it's like, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But then uh, subsequently left politics, got an opportunity in the family business. I thought, hey, I actually need some hands-on experience. I could try to, you know, a few ventures of my own. And then it's like, okay, I want some, you know, proper business experience. And the business was, the family business was expanding across Australia. Uh, and then from there, I sort of saw when the, uh, you know, I was getting a bit itchy and I think I was ready to start my own venture. And then what, um, what sort of came about as Uber was sort of taking off, it was still a bit of a gray area of the law. I don't know if you remember, it was sort of, is, do. is it legal? Is it illegal? You know, you know, that it was operating. Is the government going to, um, not allow it to operate because it's impacting the taxi industry and all Correct. the, the yep. cost of the plates that all yep. these people had spent money on. Exactly. But then when these taxi laws were written, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, it, there was no such thing as a mobile phone, let alone GPS on a mobile phone, let alone an app. You know, it was, that's it's just crazy. So so that's why it was a grey area of the law. But what, you know, with the knowledge that I knew um, and had built up working for the politicians, seeing how the industry had operated – you know, it was only a matter of time before an Uber or, you know, that type of platform was legal, uh, like properly legal. And then uh, so I think where the opportunity was uh, starting Splend, it was still that grey area. But I think the punt was, is it going to be properly, you know, uh, turned? Is Australia uh, going to allow it? Correct, exactly. And I think, uh, yeah, and that was sort of the, 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 the risk that was undertaken when we first launched it. Uh, and then the risk, you know, the, it paid off because within six months, it was legalised, I think, in ACT first, then New South Wales, and then, you know, a few months after that in Queensland and Western Australia, et cetera. And within a year of starting, the greyness was taken out and it was 100% legal everywhere. And so you acted early. You were, you were the Correct. first yeah. into that space. Yeah. And did you ever have an issue or a concern with, uh, shit, my company is reliant on another company's kind of success? But was that ever – I know, mean, you've had this conversation. Is that what – was that ever like a, mm, this is a risk or were you like, nah, th this is a pretty solid concept and regardless of one company's success, the concept and the model will continue? Yeah, correct. Because it really it wasn't, I mean, Uber was the driving force to change all the regulations and the laws, but it was actually creating a new market, like effectively a pre-booked market where you can, you know, legally book a, any car just via an app. Um, so at the end of the day, if it wasn't Uber, it's going to be saying there's a lot of apps around there around the world. I yeah. mean, Uber obviously market share leader in, in a lot of markets, and we're a really you know fantastic partner of ours. Um, but look, I think at those early days, it was like, look, if it's there were, there were other apps out there, and it was only a matter of time 
um, that other apps would come in. And so if, you know, if Uber didn't take off at that particular time, there, there would have been someone else. Yeah, there. that's what I meant. So yeah. it's like it's not you're not relying on a company. You're kind of relying on a new industry. Yeah, and that new industry is going to keep going forward. So yeah, correct. And look, at the end of the day, where the demand was coming from was people moving. So if you look at it, it's like uh, are people not going to move? There's going to be more people that moved if you make it more accessible. You know, all of a sudden, if it becomes a bit cheaper and it becomes a lot easier, like you know, to get a cab, you know, previously hail it on a you know from the street or at a rank. Or what, and I, yeah. this is another topic. Yeah. Everyone was crying about the taxi industry, but it's like these guys were giving us the shittest product and service you could possibly imagine, and then they have a whinge that consumers move to a newer, better option that's also cheaper. Yeah, do you remember in taxis? God, they used to frustrate me. I was only like sixteen, and it used to frustrate me. You, you know, you'd want to go to a, a party or to something, and you'd call a taxi. And then you say, oh, how long will that be? And they say, oh, first available. And then you yeah. remember you'd just sit yeah, there yeah, and wait. You'd have correct. no yeah, concept yeah, 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 of yeah. is it an hour or 10 minutes? We don't know. It, it's funny thinking back to it because it, that's just crazy. You know, you speak to the, the new generation coming through and it's like they never experienced that and they would just go, you can you can get from A to B whenever you want and you can you know exactly how long it's going to take and how far the, the, the driver is – from you. And then the taxis yeah. were disgusting. Yeah. Everything stunk. They were never upgraded. No, because it was the only option to move. Yeah. That's the problem when there's when there's not enough, I guess, competition for for long enough that an industry gets stale. It, it literally goes off. Yeah, like correct, it, it's correct, wrong. Yeah. You can't eat that food anymore. It's, it makes you sick. So Sorry. No, the whole, the whole market was just was busted. Like the, everything had to do in the supply chain, the way the taxi plates evolved, the um, the drivers. Um, you know, the whole industry was just it was just broken. Yeah, yeah, it's out of whack. Yeah, you actually have to like now that you think about it. Like we're sitting here, like oh, that was so obvious. But you have to kind of give props to what's Uber's founder's name again? Tra- Travis. Yeah, uh, Travis. What? Anyway, whatever. Thanks, Travi. Um, you actually got to give him props because it's kind of like, well, that's the dude that not just uh, noticed that there was a problem, but he actually did something about it. You know, and, and getting back to your your comment about how business uh, improves, you know, you can have a bigger impact as an entrepreneur, uh, even po- uh, potentially than a politician. I mean, that guy certainly had a big impact on my life and probably most other people's lives more so than politicians. But, I mean, that that was a really natural kind of progression and flow and it's something that technology made available. You know what I mean? And technology is doing this with, with a whole bunch of industries and people like yourself, uh, I mean, you didn't even create the technology that disrupted the industry. You noticed the technology and then realised that, wow, this is a new industry and this new industry is going to need service providers or need uh, additional business to to bolt in, and and that's something very common that's happening. You know, entrepreneurs don't have to necessarily be the person that creates Facebook. You know, they could be the person. You know, Facebook wasn't the first social media platform. You know, it was probably the you know the third or fourth thing. You, know, you had the MySpace, yeah. and it was the Bebo, and a couple yeah. others. But and you know they started, they ramped up, and then they you know it wasn't the right model. But the, the industry was sort of starting to get created. People wanted that. Brewing. There was something there, you know. That, so that was almost the proof of concepts were done with the previous, yeah. the original businesses, and then they came along and said, "Okay, great, we'll grab the bull by the horns and 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 run with it." And they uh, let and the you know that that initial period, the five or ten years that led to Facebook, 
help Facebook be successful. If they and were the first guys, maybe they wouldn't have been successful. But also imagine Facebook. Facebook created a bunch of other companies, it, types of businesses to start, which is what I was getting at. Like, like your business was a, a business that was able to start due to a need caused by an industry disruption. Imagine before Facebook, there was no like social media marketing agencies or digital marketing. And, and imagine all the content creation companies that started because of Facebook. It was funny. One of my first businesses that I um, started when I was um, finished high school and uni was an events business, holding events. You know, and Facebook was a key part of that. It was when Facebook would start to ramp up and you do Facebook ads and you get people, you know, you put the event up and people check that they're, they're you know, say, say that they're in. Yeah. And then you can yeah, sort of – RSVP. Yeah, all that sort of that stuff. That was revolutionary stuff. I know, I know. But I remember at the time thinking, how did anyone do events like without Facebook? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I actually want to get to the, to the story because we're at the start of the story. So you, um, you, you realised there was a gap. How many cars did you start with? 30. Not, we started with, yeah, 30 was the pilot program, yeah. but we started with one car. I mean, we got the first car on the road. Yeah. It's like, oh, great. It's actually going to, you know, we actually put a few cars on the road and then we got five and then 10 and then over, we got 30 on the road in about three months. Okay, that was two, pretty two, quick. Two or three months. I think. Okay, so you got one car. So basically yeah. you put one car, mm. am I going to lose money in this car was your thing. Okay. Well, is someone going to, you know, like with any yeah. business when they're starting, you're going to get the first customer. Well, is know? this car an asset? Yeah. You know, are we going to get drivers? Is the model going to work with one car? Because yep. your business from what I understand, is um, if it works with one car, if, if I make X amount from car one, well, then I can make X amount from fucking 500,000 cars as long as the demand is still there. So that I'm sure there is a limit, but get as many cars as possible. So so what you did was you tested one car. Okay, well, we're making X amount with one car. Yeah, the forecast and what you budget, yeah, that, that all checks out. We didn't forget about something and, you know, that's um, – that's yeah. going to work. And then, yeah, we put another, you know, four or five cars on and then another four or five and then within two or three months we had 30. And that was what you'd call, I guess, your first – that was when it became a proper business in the sense. Like, yeah, 30 cars out, yeah. you were operating, it was a proven model. Yeah. It was kind of like your the, the first opportunity. And also you're managing 30 drivers in the sense that, you're, um, you know, you're you're learning to assist them because was that yeah, the yeah we, we were refining the model, yeah. understanding the customers, working out, um, you know, uh, what we needed to do. Whereas I think, you know, the original sort of thought process before I, I launched it was there's all these existing drivers out there that might need a, a more cost effective car. And then when we launched the pilot, um, you know, as an example, what we learned is it's all the um, potential drivers that don't have a car that are wanting a job and employment income. And so you discovered yeah. your actual market after you launched. Well, to discovered, I suppose, how big the market was, but also like the sort of the sweet spot um, yeah. of you know your um, ideal client. Yeah, and, and what we need to do to, to as part of the offering, you know, to, to you know help them be successful. And so, at the start, was the plan to just provide the car to the driver, or was the plan to also assist the driver in uh, being the you know the best possible? financial driver i guess in the sense that earn the best money driving originally it was it was just the car right but very quickly after launching you know i don't know how many cars in five or ten it was okay when this is the the opportunity is really helping helping our customers uh on these platforms but even just like at the very start with signing up to the platforms you know there's a lot of paperwork needed and criminal history checks and medicals driving checks all sorts of things like that's that's complex in itself and then once you, you're behind the wheel and you've done all that, then, okay, well, what do you do? 
how do you maximize your earnings? So yeah, very quickly we learned there's an opportunity there. Um, and it was funny, like, you know, some of our original customers were, uh, initial customers were taxi drivers and it's very different driving a taxi to a ride share. Why is that? Well, with taxis, you've got, um, you, you know, you go to taxi ranks. You also like, you know, they literally just drive around and, you know, uh, with the light on the top, so that, you know, people pull them over. Yeah. So, you know, some taxi drivers know, okay, well, here's where a lot of people are, you know, usually flagging taxis from the street and they just constantly drive around. So they do a lot of kilometers, but they, they can't, they're sort of dead kilometers because they're just driving around, you know, um, you know, trying to find work. Almost or, aimlessly waiting, waiting well, yeah, for something. Yeah. Which costs fuel, money. it costs money, all that sort of stuff. So it's like, you know, one of the things when you drive rideshare, you don't have to do that. You can just wait. You don't have to, you can drive from one area to another because that's where the demand is, but you don't need to go around in circles, do laps of the block and all that sort of stuff to wait for customers. And so they yeah. knew that. So they prefer, so they had switched early. So some of the first, I guess, rideshare drivers were taxi people that yeah. realized, hey, this is better. You're going you're gonna to more money. Yeah. yeah. And it's easier. Well, yeah, you're correct. Yeah. And then you, you've got a car that you can use both for work, for rideshare, but also uh, after hours for your personal usage. Yeah. And so how long did it, would you say it took you to go from 30 to let's say, um, I don't know, a hundred or two or enough where you had to do some bulk hiring of team? Cause I know you have well, originally, over a hundred staff when we, more. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I can't imagine now, but I, I know it was a lot last time we spoke. How was the process of building a team around a, a new concept like that? Well, originally when we started putting those 30 cars on the road, we thought, geez, Best case scenario, this is the, the, the ambitious target, was 500 cars over the next three or four years. That was the target. So, um, and then look, we got the 30 cars on the road within two or three months. But then by the end of the year, we were, we were nearly at 200. Jeez. So, um, and then after that, we started expanding across Australia. And then I think we we're at 500 within nine months of launching. Wow. Nine or 10 months, yeah. And to finance those cars for yourself, to actually buy the cars, did you have to raise capital? We no, we had some uh, we had some financing partners, mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know vehicle finance partners that helped us out. Um, but yeah, it was interesting going through that because we were, we were growing too fast, you know. So and what we were, problems did that bring? Well, I mean, I, I suppose maybe problems, challenges, things you got to get onto. And to your point, we obviously had to start hiring, and obviously you've got to get the right people for the particular phase of the journey that you're at. So we're hiring like crazy. Got to get finance facilities in place, and then. Um, you know, uh, towards the, I think the back end of the second year, we we, uh, we need to raise our first external uh, equity from investors. So that was so, so. That was the first time you did your you raised actual equity. Equity, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, that was at the end of your second year. Yeah. And what what did you say? What would you say was the biggest challenge? Because I, I do want to talk about capital raising with you as well, because I know you have a lot of experience in it. But before that point. What would you say your biggest challenges were as the CEO, as an entrepreneur, in uh, that first two years of business of exceptional growth? Um, that the the biggest issue you had in that first two, in the first two years? Geez, I don't think I can put it down to one particular issue or, or thing that we were really focused on because, like you, you know, when you're really getting off the ground and you're scaling that fast, you've obviously you're hiring like crazy. You're still learning the business and refining and putting in place systems and processes. Uh, and then all of a sudden you, you go, geez, this is actually going to be way bigger than we even thought about. Um, you know, you're raising, uh, you know, getting some investment on board to, you know, growth capital to be able to scale it up. So I think there were like multitude of things that were like all sort of running along stream at the same time. And um, uh, did, were you ever surprised at the success of the business? Because, I mean, it's not every business. I, I know a lot of 
we know a lot of, um, we have obviously a lot of mutual friends through Cub, but we know a lot of successful people and not everyone's kind of business just took off very quickly. You know what I mean? It, it's a lot of them took a lot of time. Yours just kind of went bang. Did, was that a scary experience or was it promising experience? That kind of sounds like a stupid question, but I'm, I'm curious what you're going to say. Uh, look, I think there was a lot of learnings quick. I think that uh, a lot of businesses, I mean, um, whether you start off growing really strong or not, there's a lot of hard work needed. There's a lot of, I suppose, good luck, good luck element as well, you know, right market conditions. Mm. You know, I mean, look, COVID's hit us. I mean, it could, it could be a really um, great or really poor time to start a business that would have actually gone gangbusters pre-COVID and vice versa. So I think we were in the right time at the right place. So there was some good fortune there. Um, and I think that as we were scaling up, I think that, you know, we were – laser focus on just sort of testing the business model, seeing if things were still working and not taking everything for granted, so to speak, just because that's how it worked at the very start. Is that still working now? And we, you know, a few tweaks and, um, and uh, learnings were incorporated uh, into the, into the business and the model and the refinements. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the growth was, uh, you know, we, at the end of the first six months, we go, okay, this business now can get to a couple thousand cars. So then at that point we started building getting ahead of the curve and putting things in place to be able to achieve that. Oh, that's quite interesting. So, I mean, you had that a goal of 500, but when you realized you were wrong with your goal, yeah. you actually were able to plan ahead to then uh, uh, to hold thousands of cars and, and that kind of made it easier. Yeah. yeah. Well, because no, you could plan ahead. You could maybe not. I wouldn't say easier, but I would say that um, yeah, scalable, yeah. more scalable. And and how did you when you're bringing on team members at this point? Because I'm assuming your team would have had to been have been growing quite fast. Mm. Were you meeting with everyone? Were you involved heavily in the recruitment? Uh, was was recruitment a problem? What was the experience like for you? Um, look, I was involved with all the, a lot of the senior hires, um, but you know, I think after the. I think after the first year, um, you know, I think that uh, we we had a lot of a lot of people on board, and I wasn't involved in every hire, but uh, but yeah, the first six twelve months, still all the all the senior hires, and um, you know, a lot of the other other hires we made. I'd and, say. And do you hold quite closely your leadership team? Are you in constant communication with them, or I guess what would your management style or leadership style be within the leadership team at, at that time, or just generally? No, I guess your your uh, how you've learnt to be now. Look, I think you've got to be a, uh, you've got to adjust your leadership um, at different evolutions and stages of the business. You know, obviously at the very start, you're more hands-on naturally. I mean, you've got, you know, you're still building things and getting the, the team members in place. And I think I, it also depends on what, um, you know, the different team members that you bring on, what their skills, capability, and experience are. Um, you know, as you sort of get bigger and you you bring new members of the team on as uh, as required to get to the next the next phase and the next stage, they bring different skills and capabilities, et cetera, and different leadership requirements from um, from the sort of the CEO perspective and different management um, techniques and styles. So what you're saying is it, it's kind of ever-evolving and depends yeah, yeah. entirely on the team you have at that current time. A hundred percent, ever-evolving. There's not just, you know, you don't just start a business and you know, this, is the, the, this is the way that you need to run it and then that just, you can then scale a, a business accordingly up. And do you, an evolution. Do you, do you notice like when you – because when I think back at myself when, for example, Laura started and I think back at my who I was as a person and, and what my what was going in my brain and, you know, how I was as a leader. I mean, I, was I a bad leader at any point? I never thought I was bad. I just maybe wasn't as aware of the importance. But 
Like I definitely you, can say learn. now. Yeah, that's you learn. I, yeah, you learn on the journey. You learn. And yeah, I, yeah. I reckon a lot of people, a lot of people in business, they, they're very conscious. As, as the as the business owner, you, you, you're a leader and that comes with a big responsibility and you kind of feel, you know, it's kind of intimidating but it's also kind of like empowering and you're kind of nervous about it. What do people think about me? Do they? Do I look smart? Do I, you know? And I think back to especially when you, you when you if you're younger, I mean I imagine that doesn't change. I can only speak from my experience but I can imagine that doesn't change as a leader older but I definitely can see uh, in the past I was – Definitely not the leader I am today. Would you say the same about yourself? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if and if someone said that they were, they haven't they haven't learned or grown. You know, I'd say that um, history would say that you know potentially people that haven't uh, grown as leaders probably haven't grown their business as successful as it could have been. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And there's also different, especially. I mean, I'm experiencing it now, but I'm sure you would have a, a better pers- uh, perspective on it as the team grows you end up with these kind of different groups within the team, not groups as in um, like friendship or closeness, more so as in how devoted they are to the business in this sense. Because newer people, you, know, you can't expect them to have their heart in it the same way the you know founding team does because they've, they've been there for so long. They've devoted more time. And, and so you kind of have to manage different devotion levels. And, and also the ultimate goal is to bring everyone to a, or uh, I mean, I can only, again, if you're a large corporation, I'm sure that is not the ultimate goal. But as a, uh, businesses like us that are still building, still growing, and relatively still small in terms of what can actually uh, become, you do want to bring everyone into the heart and, you know, make them love their role and make them be committed. Do you do anything that you feel uh, others could do that creates symmetry between business and team or that creates devotion yeah i mean look there's a there's a lot you can focus on and what we've done in terms of culture and values and guiding principles your vision and mission um you know i think there's there's a number of things that um you know scale ups and successful business are, are good at in that area uh, when they focus on those things and those are essential things for scale ups you're saying for, when you're growing that culture is 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 key. Well, I would say it's essential for any any business, um, but yeah, definitely for for scale ups and getting you know when you're growing rapidly, I think there's different um, you know there's different requirements to get everyone on the journey to go at the same speed and be all aligned. Um, and I say that um, you know if you're growing a business at a much slower level, um, perhaps that you don't need to do all those things, but it's a different different type of business that's getting creative. You still need them, just you just don't need to focus on them as much. Yeah, but do you know what? Do you remember the other day when I was asking you about operations and uh, when we we're on your balcony mm. and I was saying how, you know, we are always constantly changing our operations and, it's, and I was saying that, you know, when you do that, you kind of get it overdoing it because, you know, you feel like, oh, is there any point? It keeps changing. And I was asking you, and it changes because you keep growing and improving and therefore your business has to change and therefore your operations and manuals change also. Um, and, and and I was asking you, was that normal for you? And you said, yeah, we, we didn't, you know, at the start, we didn't focus entirely on that. I don't want to speak for you, so yeah. I'm just trying to describe the conversation. Yeah. My point I'm saying is what we did well at Cub which I'm curious if you believe it's the case for yourself, what we did well was never this is the formal operations and this is how you do it and this is the process for everything and how it interlocks. We weren't mature enough as a company to do that. What we did well, what I believe is what you're describing, which is 
if you want to be on this team, this is what we're like. This is what we stand for. This is what we do. This is how we act. This is, this is our culture, the vision, all the, you know, the lame stuff they tell you, the vision, the mission. The, like, you know, that, that stuff actually does build something and you can add more to that. But that's the way to scale. It's like you can't – scaling and changing, and especially in disruptive industries, your operations are changing all the time. You can't keep reteaching. But what you can teach once is the culture. And I think that's key to the scale. Yeah, and then, and then permeated in the organization. Yeah, definitely. That, that's the way you have to get it started. I mean, at the very start of a business, you don't, you can't do that, man. You and even at the earlier stages, and as you're scaling, um, you know, you're constantly changing and evolving. And if you did an operations manual, you know, like a a Bible that's like set in stone, you won't. You know, most businesses won't be successful because they can never scale up because you just you're too rigid, and then you, you've almost become a corporate before you've you've scaled up. Yeah, and you're yeah. not. You're not. You're not constantly improving and i think that's what causes these companies to scale is there's the constant improvement yeah they keep getting better but as you do evolve you do need to get the you know the, the robust processes with but with a culture and a and a sort of a corporate um knowledge of these things are constant they're not set in stone and you've got to constantly test test them make sure they're working or if they're not working get onto them asap and there's also yeah. elements of the operations which are fixed for example and, and and you need them to scale for example with cub we need to know how to run, service, and manage the community at that basis in order to to bring on more members and to open more clubhouses. There needs to be. This is how you run this community. This is how it yeah. works. You need the consistency. The, the basic, as well. Yeah, the basic yeah. consistency. Yeah. So you do need them to scale, but you need some flexibility in them, in the sense because you also want to keep improving them. You're correct. So yeah, the mindset is okay. Well, here's how we're doing it now, and that's working. But then the mindset needs to be how do we how do we keep how do we keep testing yeah, it? How do we or, keep changing that? Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. How, do we, how do we keep improving that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, just tweaking it, you know, um, uh, you know, understanding what how we can improve. Man, business is very confusing. <laughs> not but, easy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's not <laughs> when you think – even trying to – just trying to verbalise what we're yeah. talking about, yeah. I can't tell if we sound stupid or if we sound smart, but because it's that – you know, even people like us, we're in business, a lot of the listeners are in, they mm. can hopefully relate to what we're, talk, we're describing, but like – Talking about it sounds silly. At one point we were saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's more about the culture. And then we switched to, oh, yeah, but you also need the operations to scale. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and the bigger you get, the harder it gets. Yeah. Not, not the easier. Yeah. Have yeah. you found that? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the but, only- you know, in a, in a, like, you know, it's a, it's, it's a challenge. You know, no one gets into business for the easy, easy road. I mean, some people may, but then, you know, shortly thereafter they find out that it's bloody difficult. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. the hardest path and yeah. that's why it has the biggest reward. Yeah. But what one thing I found – that gets easier getting better, uh, bigger, sorry. Well, you could say better. But the one thing I found that gets easier being bigger is that you have more cash. And when you have more cash, you can solve more problems in a sense. Like you, you've got that. I mean. You can make more, you can make you can more make mistakes. more mistakes. Yeah. yeah that, and yeah. that too. Yeah. 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 You can also lose more cash. <laughs> Correct. But it, I mean, that's the only, that, that's definitely the benefits of getting bigger, mm. bigger problems, but you've also got bigger money to, to assist you in catching them. Um, and so you then wanted to raise. You didn't need to raise because you had finance companies that were uh, We did to take you to the next level. Yeah. So yeah. W- what did that mean? What did that look like? What was the next level? And how did the money help you do that? Uh, well, the first investment we took on, uh, equity investment, was actually to increase our finance facility. So we took investor money. Not that we needed to spend it. We needed it to uh, help support increase in finance facilities. 
So oh, so yeah. so you needed cash in the bank yeah. so that finance companies would like give put, you more money. It's a bit yeah, correct. It's a bit like you know when you buy a house. Yeah. You, you a, a simple example. You need your deposit. Yeah. Well, we wanted to get a really big mortgage and we to buy cars with. Um, we needed a, a deposit. Now we did the way it works at the back end. You don't actually put the deposit down, but they just want to see the deposit in, in your account. Yeah, yeah. And so you thought, okay, well, I could get this deposit, but I'd have to wait a year or two, or I can scale faster. So basically, That's it was, right. I can scale faster by having money in my account. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And did you have? Did you search for a particular type of investor? Did you go for uh, like? Uh, private investment? Did you go for uh, venture capital funds or for um, private equity? Private equity. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. Look, we we actually started speaking to a range, you know, uh, family office uh, type investors. We spoke to uh, corporate type investors, uh, venture capital type investors. And then we sort of got halfway between venture capital and, and corporate uh, in terms of we got a, a corporate that had a uh, venture capital private equity arm. It, uh, it was like a financial institution. So that was like a, you know, that was a good um, sweet spot. And why was that? Why do you feel that worked for you? And by corporate, do you mean a large company of which was in your industry and kind yeah, of wanted to, strategic, you, know, you yeah. know, they go, oh, look, we can't do it. Yeah, so strategic, which we ended up taking a strategic in a subsequent uh, race. But the first one was not strategic, corporate strategic. It was more between corporate and, and venture capital, but it was a it was a financial institution. It had their like a VC arm. And what advice would you have on people in terms of choosing uh, the right investor and the right type of investment? Uh, very important company or platform. Yeah, very very important. And I think that um, you know I know that when uh, you know people are starting a business and they need to raise funds to grow the business and to sort of scale it up, sometimes they get stuck between a rock and a hard place where it's like, geez, I just need the money, um, and you know I'll, I'll take it from anyone obviously as long as the price is right and all the sort of the you know conditions etc but I, I do think you've got to really think through because I've, I've seen it for a number of entrepreneurs and and, uh, and sort of startup scale-up companies where they've made a they haven't thought through who they're taking their money from when you've got a few different options and if you're in the luxury of having a few different options you really got to sort of think through how they're going to contribute and what they're going to bring to the table mm-hmm. don't just take the first check that, uh, that that comes across your across your desk um, because yeah, I mean that you know you could you, you could run into difficulties in the years to come, as you could, which would inhibit growth. Yeah, I can't relate to that, but because I haven't raised, but we might be yeah. with this new yeah. this new technology we're yeah. coming out yeah. with. But I, I'm it's something I'm very scared about is like having someone have to tell me what to do, like or like even maybe not tell but like even like kind of push towards yeah, like, yeah, yeah. no don't I had know. that feeling too did you yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and how did you deal with that look in first investor we took on I mean they, they were great you know so they um you know you set the, the terms and conditions you know you have paperwork um and very you know, important to have that at the start this is how yeah, this yeah, is yeah. these are the terms and conditions this is how we're going to agree but also the investors that you know mo- most investors and again you got to pick the right ones but you, you know they're not coming in to be be your boss they're to be your partner Right, because at the end of the day, if you know if if you're successful and the business is successful, they're going to be successful. So they're they're aligned with your interests, Um, and uh, you know. But you do you you can get. I've heard stories where you've got investors that come in and they do sort of sort of boss you around. Uh, Now, obviously, investors bring governance, and you got to you know you got to give them transparency, which is perfectly um, fine, acceptable. Yeah, but they're not they're not your boss per se. No, but it's just additional. Pressure. I, I mean, I look. I don't know. I haven't done it. Well, there's but, overhead. But, but, you've got to. You've got to. There's people that you didn't have to. You have to report to. You got to say, hey, here's how we're doing. 
Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. So there's oversight. Yeah, and look, you know, that does take up a bit of time and energy uh, as well, which, you know, which is ultimately taking away from the business. So, uh, and you know, depending on what type of investors, how many you get on, that overhead might be a little or it might be large. And do you, yeah. did you find there's a different? I mean, have you had different styles of investors? Have you had private? Yeah. yeah. So we, we have had the you know subsequent to that, we had some a, a strategic shareholder, a corporate, very large business, fleet leasing company. Um, and, uh, yeah, very, very different to the, um, and what did you notice investment. differences were between like a corporate, a VC, a private? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the corporate investors, strategic shareholders, obviously the people behind them are usually employees of the company, right? They're a big, you know, big corporate and, um, you know, there's, there's different styles, you know, usually venture capital and VC type investors, like the people that invest in you, the actual individual, they usually have some sort of financial interest to making you successful as well as their, their fund. Yeah, personally. Personally, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the sort of the venture capital model. The, the principals and the partners of the firm usually got, you know, well, almost agree. always have upside, right, as well as the fund and the fund's investors. Um, when you've got corporate investors, what we've learned, and this is quite common, they don't usually have that upside. Usually they, you know, they, the individual that's on the, your investment, on your board or whatever it is, may just get a salary and get a bonus at the end of the year, which is perfectly okay for a corporate. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but they're not necessarily fully aligned. And also, you know, as with any any uh, job and employee, that, you know, there's and even a there can large be turnover. Yeah, people move to different opportunities and whatnot, which is um, which is perfectly normal. But then all of a sudden what we found is, you know, we've had, uh, you know, some of those uh, people that backed you and invested in you, the, the business, uh, you know, they, they left. And then so case, you, yeah. you kind of had to build new relationships with, with the newer people. Yeah, correct. And, you know, in our case, they, you know, new people came in, new management team came into the corporate investor with a new strategy. And the strategy wasn't to invest in, you know, uh, you know, similar type of business models, like emerging companies, emerging business models. It was uh, to do none of that, and they basically said, "Hey, we're not." Uh, You're you not know. in our strategy. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, look, we encountered some challenges with that particular uh, investor, where they, uh, you know, reneged on a couple of agreements and uh, caused a bit of difficulty for us, um, which was challenging. Yeah, adds overhead. You know, all the energy and time which could be spending on the business, you're now dealing with that problem. Yeah, so the, 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 that, that's what I was going to say. It, it's challenging in the sense of it was just distracting. Massive, massively distracting, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. That, that's what takes is that? Oh. Would you say that's what takes most from you, the business in terms of, um, in ter- in terms of that issue was what, to, what was the, the biggest issue it caused? Was it just your time in the sense yeah, like, yeah. I want to be well, doing not, this. Yeah, but, but not just my time this. and my team's time and other, you know, other stakeholders and other, the other investors as well, the major investors. So like, you know, I'd gone from, a, well, in our case, we'd gone from a situation where the first investor was fantastic, supportive. They just, you know, go, go grow this business and, you know, we'll, we'll help you out. So then we've had a, the, the next investor that came in. The, Are they still the, involved? No, no, we, we got them out pre-COVID. I was going to say, yeah. we're speaking about it. They're yeah, probably yeah, yeah. not. Yeah. No, no, they're not. Yeah. No, we, got them, we got them out <laughs> pre-COVID. But, yeah, they, um, they were a challenging bunch. Just the new the new team that came in. The old team was fantastic and, um, uh, you know, the uh, – Which yeah. I guess it demonstrates the risk of having uh, a corporate investor. And, I mean, they're, they're – doesn't mean all corporate investors are not good. No, correct. But there yeah. is a risk in terms of okay, the team could change, and therefore you may no longer fit the strategy, or other, or you might have an issue with the new relationships. And look, this happened about nine months after they invested in us, like very quickly. And they, just for background, they, this particular investor facilitated our expansion overseas to so the UK, Canada, Mexico. 
I so they were an integral. Integral. In, yeah. yeah. We wouldn't have gone overseas if it wasn't for that investor, that strategic investor. And then, you know, saying that they would support us in certain ways, financial and non-financial. Uh, and then, uh, and then, yeah, nine months later, it was a change of strategy. Sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, wow. Yeah. That's actually a very good segue into what I want to speak about next, yeah. next, which is your international expansion. Yeah. You've got a thriving business in Australia at that point. Yep. You, you've got a great team you, you, in, in, in terms of it's all working together, you're present and, and yep. it's, this is, a, this is a, a cash machine at this point. You don't say that I said that in terms of yeah, yeah, its yeah. function. Look, yeah, yeah, we're you know, profitable cash flow positive, all, you yeah, know, yeah. all, all good, good stuff. stuff. Yeah. And, and this investor, so, so I actually didn't know this, but this investor was actually a key reason as to why you went international. They were, yeah. They, a, yeah. And why was that? What did they tell you? What was the overall thing well look i mean the people that were behind this organization they they are business scalers they've done this multiple times and turned you know gone from naught to you know, billion dollar businesses which is really impressive and they were you know strongly encouraging us to have a look at other markets um which we did uh the uk canada and mexico and they had big operations in north america it's, so, yeah. so so yeah like we went over we had a look and we said wow and you sort of you know look, you go outside of australia and you re- realize very quickly that most markets are bigger than Australia. So yeah. things are working okay in Australia. You go, geez, if they just do half good over in the other markets, then you can have a bigger business than what you have in Australia. So, you know, similar opportunity in terms of Uber just starting and there was, um, you know, uh, you know, no one providing vehicles and support services like we were. So we had the partnerships with Uber and some other platforms, car manufacturers, and then, you know, some strategic investors or investors that we got. It, it's all aligned with us in making sense for us to sort of give it a crack overseas. Two questions. Yeah. First, as someone whose mum's from Mexico, what made you choose Mexico as a country to do business in? Not because I don't love Mexico. I'm literally half Mexican. Yeah. But because as a country, I can't imagine the governance regulations. I can imagine the, a lot of corruption. And I mean, we all know Mexico. What made you choose? Oh, yeah, let's go do business there, as opposed to all the other countries. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there was it was the strategic investor. They they uh, they're one of the biggest car finance, car leasing businesses in Mexico, as well as in other parts of you know in the US and Canada. So so that sort of brought us to Mexico to have a look. Oh, so those guys they yeah. took you there, and I see ya. Yeah, well, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. yeah. No, but I uh, they went to Mexico City specifically. Mexico City is one of the biggest cities in the world. You know, the broader Mexico City, amazing city. Uh, uh, area. You've got 20, 25 million people, um, and you've got more rideshare drivers in Mexico City than you do the whole of Australia, right? And they've got it's even deep, more difficult to get access to a car and car finance there. So we go, wow, this opportunity is massive. So, you know, it was really market size and sort of how our business model works and how we how we help our drivers. The impact in Mexico City was by far bigger than anywhere else, that, you know, in Australia, UK, Canada. So, yeah, it was a massive win-win for, for all the, the metrics on paper looked great. Yeah, yeah, massive, yeah. And, yeah. and what, would, uh, what, if any, issues did you encounter – um, I, I'm focusing on Mexico as opposed to the other countries mm. for now, only because it's the only other country that you'd call. Uh, I mean, what world is Mexico? It's it's a developing market. A developing yeah, it's country, a developing market. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And look, you know, compared to where we launched, it's different uh, language, different legal system, different way of doing business. Like everything's everything's different, right? Um, so yeah, that was the old one out. Whereas you look at UK and Canada. I mean, you know, in Australia, they're all very similar in terms of you know legal system, language, you know, ancestry. Um, 
the way the finance system works, mm. rules, regulation, that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, Mexico are very different on all those and, fronts. But so, so my question is, was yeah. it more difficult? Look, yeah, it was It was definitely definitely different. Uh, it was easier in some ways and more difficult in others. So I think overall our experience there actually is a market. Um, you know, it, it's not like what most Australians or Australian business uh, people would think Mexico is. Just, just in our experience, you know, in our business, we didn't see any, you know, corruption or anything too dodgy. Mexico is a bit, bit more unsafe than, you know, from a, you know, when you go there, you gotta, you got to be a bit careful. Uh, but to be honest, you go to bloody some areas of London or oh, yeah. America. You, you, you or wish you were in Mexico, like, some areas of London. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so I, I'd say that you know you got to you got to you got to make sure when you go there, you know, there's safe areas, unsafe, more or less uh, less safe areas. But uh, in, in terms of business, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different in different ways. But yeah, overall, I thought it was I thought it was an okay okay place. You know, okay. The, the people are very friendly, and it's. Uh, you know, in terms of our Australians' reputations, there they're all very positive. Yeah, we're 100%. not. You know. Mexicans are the best people. Yeah, well, there you Except go. Yeah, yeah. Be, be good mates be, with one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Unlucky you. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but so essentially, you chose the countries you're going to because of the alignment with this corporate. Correct. That, strategic investor. Yeah, strategic corporate investor. Yep. Mad. And so it was Canada, Mexico, um, London. UK. Yeah. UK. Yeah. And what was the biggest issue or challenge or difficulty you found uh, controlling and running a an international organisation as mm. opposed to when it was Australia, uh, just Australia? Very good question. Um, look, I think it was actually the time zone, you know, because the, although there was a what? lot of stuff, it was actually there was a lot of stuff going on, right? But there was a lot of stuff going on in Australia. But I think one thing that really sort of catches you off guard in our experience, in my experience, is when you're dealing with you know, Australia time zone, uh, European time zone, North American time zone, you, you deal, you, things go 24 hours. So like things are, you know, things are just moving it, uh, you know, 24 seven, particularly during the week. So there's only, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and you know, you got to sleep at eight. So yeah, it just, it just means that you've got to, um, you can get burnt out more easily and you can really run it. You get in a situation where you're running, you're running really hard. Now, when you start a business up, you run really hard anyway. But when you're in Australia and you're in, say, Sydney or even your other parts of Australia, uh, you know, there's a, few, there's a couple of hours time zone difference between the east and the west, but that's really it. So when you go to sleep... There's no new problems occurring while you're When asleep. you wake up, there's no new... Yeah, there's yeah. no new problems or there's no things you've got to do, et cetera. And when you're trying to start up and scale a business up, you want to move at really good pace, you know, so every... Every sort of minute or every hour, like you want to just get things turning. So I think that when you when you're all these time zones, things are naturally slower, right? And um, uh, you know you can't you can't just move at constant pace. And um, and I think that was that was probably you know one probably the, the single biggest challenge to get things fired up. Um, but you know what's funny about that? Manage, yeah. How you, you'd never think of that as the biggest problem. Like you know, is someone who ha- doesn't run an international company. You, I would imagine different problems, but big problem was just time zone. I got burnt out because there were new problems happening while I was sleeping and I wasn't able to just have that uniformity of daytime is I'm working and nighttime is I'm sleeping. It just became – it's kind of like – it's like if you're at war, you're fighting a battle with people just in front of you, but all of a sudden they flank you. you got some on your right, some on your left. They're coming from behind and all of a sudden you happen to fight battles on all fronts. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. imagine that kind of be. Particularly at the start, but then you go into other, you know, you, you know, building the right culture and alignment across the business, like their challenges, because you, you're not just dealing with a, you know, like a different culture for our business in a new location. You've also got the, like the country culture. Local culture. You've got, you got local culture, you know, and, di- and differences there. And um, 
so you know that when you know so when you're starting i think you know boots on the ground and trying to fire things up time zone was a challenge and then it sort of moved on to you know making sure we've got the right cultural alignment values and you know across the different businesses when you've got different local cultures different ways of doing business different expectations like different um yeah you know just just nuances that sort of add up that then uh, you know you got to then focus on and you know uh, and be on to make it successful and so you moved to london for Correct. how long yeah two or three years and you actually moved with a fellow cub member at the same yeah, time yeah, yeah, yeah and, roughly at the same time and yeah. you guys just tell the story about you and westy and tom you guys met at your welcome evening because he was a member before yeah, you. Yeah, correct. Is yep. that correct? Yep, he yep. was there. He just came to welcome some of the new members. Yeah, you guys yep, met, became yep. best of friends. Yep. And then as you were expanding your businesses, you both moved so <laughs> over to it. London that's together. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that a cool club story? Yeah, Random good. shit this club has been caused. Yeah. yeah. But they're cool because it gave you a friend when you expanded. Like each of you had each other. Um. Uh, anyway, you're in London. Did the Australian business get impacted without your presence, you know, because a business isn't the same when the when the owner's not there, you know, and, and did it get impacted? We had investors, so I, I wouldn't classify myself as the owner, but, yeah, I think what – The founder. Yeah, the founder, yeah. The CEO. CEO, CEO yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that – I mean, it's not just me that um, that went and uh, left the Australian business. Uh, there was a number of a number of us um, sort of senior, senior management that, that went and, and helped the launch overseas, and I think that, you know, taking out, you know, four or five – um, you know, good people um, that we had. Um, I think that there was, there was uh, you know, there's certainly some challenges that came in as we had to get new people on board and they didn't have the, you know, the experience and the, the exposure to some of the, you know, the sort of the, the, the key managers and management uh, in place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that just, you know, naturally the, these type of things happen. Yeah, but is that yeah. something, the point I'm trying to make, is, yeah. that, is that something that you would uh, encourage others expanding internationally or even, for example, I experienced it, experienced it in expanding to Melbourne. Mm. Is that something you would encourage people to pay special attention to because that could become a problem? Yeah, you know, 100%. Look, we expanded uh, overseas within two, in around two years, just two, two and a half years after we, we launched. And I think that you've got to make sure you've got some solid foundations in place in terms of people, systems, processes, culture before expanding uh, yeah definitely yeah uh, yeah definitely so yeah look i think we ran into some challenges and there was definitely definitely some lessons learned um you know but you know it comes down to leadership you've got to have the right leadership and management in place and i think that um you know it was all, all part of the learning experience mm. yeah and at this point you've got thousands of cars you've got big investors your international company mm. and then covid comes yep yep tell t- tell me because i know you got severely impacted by COVID, just by the yep. nature of your business in yep. general. Um, I guess describe to me how it impacted you and how you overcame it. What's that it's story? Sort of a bit like hitting it, hitting, slamming into a brick wall at full steam. And it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, there was, it was really tough. I mean, I know, and a lot of businesses were in the same boat, you know, probably nearly most businesses. Um, but yeah, I mean, we saw it pretty early on. We had, you know, London went into restrictions or UK went into restrictions, I think mid-March. So, um, yeah, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell the story of how uh, how I was actually back in Australia. I mean, I left I left my flat in London first week of March. Um, I actually had a, a really good uh, really good friend's wedding in Perth, and then I was coming over for some some work stuff for a week or so after that. Left my flat with my carry on suitcase and my suit bag, thinking I was away for I think it was seven to ten days. Anyway, um, went to the wedding. You know, wedding business as usual. You know, no restrictions, dance floor that sort of stuff. Then went to went flew to Sydney. 
And then I think it was that week that the UK went into a lockdown, for, you know, for a few weeks or whatever it was, and you, know, you couldn't go into the office. It's like, oh, I might, might stay here for another another few more weeks. And my um, uh, my lovely girlfriend was here at the time, uh, back in Sydney, you know, for some work stuff. Um, so I like, would we'll just camp out here for a few weeks. No point going back to London. Anyway, a week later, Australia goes into a lockdown. And then, uh, you know, from a business perspective, I mean, we, you know, you know, those initial lockdowns it really decimated our industry and it really, uh, you know, hurt our drivers and ultimately, um, you know, our business as well. You know, people locked in their house. Well, because you if and if your drivers can't work, they can't pay for the car and therefore you get stuck with the car payments. We, correct, yeah, yeah. We have a business to run and we yeah. had a, you know, big team. We were in growth mode. You know, we were in full steam growth mode and, um, uh, you know, our revenue went down, you know, I think 60 70% sort of overnight, um, you know, in some areas more. Um, which was, uh, you know, all in the space of, you know, two, three, four weeks. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, pretty scary. Uh, and, look, a lot of business have this this challenge. When's the end going to be? You know, is it going to be a month? Is it going to be three months, six months, two years? I mean, they were talking at the time that we'll never have a vaccine. This could be going on for years. So in which case, you're like, Jesus, you've got to make some decisions with with what information you have. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, that was um, – it was a it was a really tough time. We um, ended up having to cease business in uh, Canada and Mexico um, to focus on the UK and Australia, and then um, you know we we had to wind down you know a number of our offices and, and teams we'd built, um, which was you know by far the most difficult decisions I've had to make. Um, but you know there was no there was no options. That was the path we had to go down, um, and it was certainly probably the most difficult time. In this business, a difficult time in business that I've, I've experienced, both personally and professionally, I'd say. Yeah. I want to highlight that too, because what you're describing is, you know, when people talk about COVID and its impact on people losing their jobs, you know, what about the business owners? Right? They're obviously losing tons of money, but they have to do a horrible thing of which they don't want to do, which is actually take someone's job away, mm. not because they want to do that. So they're not only losing money, but they also have to make all these hard decisions around people that they probably care about quite a lot. You know what I mean? And, and the reason I want to highlight that is because, I mean, obviously I'm a very pro-business owner and entrepreneur, but I think they have it the worst. Yeah, everyone talks about the job loss, but what about the, the business owners losing the business? You know, it's because a business is not just one job. Mm. It's lots of jobs. Mm. And as a business owner – you're responsible, as the CEO especially, you're responsible to hold as many jobs as you possibly can. You know, as a biz- business, it's not in your best interest to, to lose people's jobs because you're trying to grow. You want more jobs, if anything. Mm. You want to grow. Yeah, correct, yeah. So and we were in, we're in full-steam growth full mode. Full growth yeah, mode. But, yeah. but that feeling of having to let people go that you otherwise wouldn't have or didn't want to, what was that feeling like? It was it was terrible. Yeah, I mean, look, we'd got we'd spent a lot of time and effort getting some great, fantastic people on board um, in 2019, the year before COVID, and uh, and we were in full growth mode, and 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 um, you know we'd we'd start we were starting to build something even you know special, and yeah, to make those calls um, was uh, was was gut wrenching. Yeah, I mean, I you can know, and, you know, cause you, but the, you know, and the thing is, if you just knew when things, if you just had a bit more certainty. Like, you know, with, with what we know now, you go back to that time. If we, if you had a crystal ball and you could see what – and now that we've played this out, you've got a time machine, you're going, gee, I wouldn't have made those decisions. But with what you had at the time, you, that, that was the right decision, unfortunately, to make. It was a very difficult decision. 
but yeah, that, it's, it makes it a bit more painful. You go, geez, I wish I'd know what I know now back then. Yeah, but you, know, you say that. that. You say that, but but also at the same time, when I was going through it, my old man, and actually I'll say what my old man told me, but I got a lot of it, a great advice. Um, but he was like, act fast. The businesses that act fast and first are the ones that are going to survive mm. and the rest won't. You know, if you don't make change, you will die. And and uh, so we, we made uh, we made some fast changes that I think were the best thing we did. By acting fast, it gave us a lot of security, gave the rest of the team a lot of security and allowed us to um, – to sustain COVID, really, yeah, I think acting fast is is crucial. But also, what you're describing is the unknown. The worst thing in business is the unknown. It's the scariest thing. It's kind of like, you know, COVID was a great example. It's kind of like, well, we don't know when we're allowed to get back in. We don't know. The unknown is the hardest thing in business. Mm. If you know, if you have a little bit of certainty, and perhaps the governments could give us a little bit more, not certainty, but a little more honesty within their decisions mm. and within realities. Mm business would better be able to operate. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the world's not going to cave in. I think everyone's short of that. Uh, and I think that we know how to how a pandemic could roughly play out, whereas there was no there was no history. Like no one, you know, 100 years ago when there was the last pandemic, business was very different. The world was very different. So I think now there's at least some sort of, uh, you know, certainty if another pandemic, another variant comes out or another bloody flu or something, you know, nasty, at least we know how things can work. Government knows what levers to pull. There's yeah, more certainty than there was yeah, pre-COVID yeah, than on a pandemic. Uh, yeah, okay, on a pandemic. Yeah, but yeah. It depends on the level of virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A virus that doesn't really kill people yeah, yeah. or a virus that kills people. Yeah. I mean, there's two things I learned. The most important things is I never thought of reasons to hold heaps of cash. And now I would say that a priority of mine, I never thought about the expenses I had and being very conservative with my money. And, um, I mean, luckily for Cub, touch wood, business owners were searching for other business owners to come to, to connect with to, yeah. to help them through COVID. And, and that's what I got. That's why Cub did all right through COVID. But being more efficient with money and wiser with money was definitely the big lesson for me. And now, into the future, I'm always making sure Cub is holding some bulk funds uh, to ensure that if it had to, keep all teams safe and keep people safe, it will do that. And uh, that w- that's what we're working towards as well is to continue just security of your company mm. is the most important thing. As a business owner, it's kind of like job security. You work for the big organization in hopes that you have job security and yep. hopes that you're always getting paid. Mm. As a business, you don't have that. As a business owner, you don't have that. Your company is your security mm. and therefore you must make your company as secure as humanly possible. Mm. You, you have funds. It doesn't mean you spend all the funds – um, every pandemic. Yeah, I so mean, you still restrict. So the still rainy day fund, all the, yeah, you, you know, still restrict the, everything. The pandemic fund. Yeah, you yeah, want it leaving bad, as slowly day. as possible. Yeah, but, yeah. but that was a big lesson. And the other big lesson was I never wanted to get caught again. I wanted a tech. I wanted tech. I wanted a tech business. I wanted a, a a business that if that I wouldn't be told I had to be locked down. I had been told how to do th- what to do, and oh, go stay in your house. Don't let anyone come to your office. I was like, fuck that. I'm going to start a business that's that's a technology business. It can work in a pandemic. If anything, it grows in a pandemic and I'll be safe on both fronts. And look, we work towards the the new, the, uh, I can't talk too much about it yet because we haven't launched it, but the new app. Mm. Exciting. And yeah, it's fucking yeah, exciting. Yeah. Every down has an up was yeah, kind of my point yeah, with yeah. that. But, but um, 
I guess what was your big lessons? What's something you learned because of COVID that you, you know, you didn't know before? What was what was a big lesson through COVID? Look, I think that um, you know it was really caught off. I think you know, I was and our organisation was caught off guard about you know uh, working from home and um, remote working. We weren't you know hundred percent geared up for it, but it was something that we were wanting to progress pre-COVID uh, more so. But just leading leading the business um, remotely very difficult. Like if you you've, you know that was not naturally my leadership style. I'm an in person type of person and a leader. Me too. I agree. And, yeah. And I think that, you know, you know, um, you know, you've got a, a team around you in a room and you, you know, you're giving them updates or presenting, et cetera. Very different to you're on a, a zoom or a, you know, Google meet call and you, you know, it's very different. I think I, um, you know, lesson learned, I didn't, uh, I didn't get into it as much as I should in terms of, you know, being able to lead, you know, and, uh, and do things, more things virtually. I sort of like, you know, without the team around me, I sort of lost a little bit of touch as to, you know, uh, you know how, you know how how uh, how people wanted updates a lot sooner. The information from me uh, specifically, you know, you know, basically, you, we're in the we're in the trenches in a in a pandemic war, and uh, you've got to got to you've got to lead the team. Constant communication, yeah. way more. You know, so I was maybe we did two used, meetings a day. Yeah, Zoom the whole company. Whereas I was more so used to the you know the pre-COVID structure. Fa- yeah, correct. Yeah, and I, I didn't appreciate. I think that was the lesson uh, lesson learned. Uh, main one of the main lesson learned is just didn't appreciate how vital and important it was. And I think that took a bit of time to sort of work through and get uh, get where it needed to to be. Uh, still, still a learning exercise. I'm still definitely an in-person leader, but. Um, Certainly, my virtual, you know, leading leading remotely is, is is improved since then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, we've had the conversation before. We, we both prefer in person. We mm. both prefer uh, teams coming in. Yeah. But but I mean, that's again. I guess that's one of the small silver linings in COVID was that uh, leaders such as us uh, had to were forced to um, improve other leadership styles. Other, you know, it kind of opened your mind to. What's possible? Mm. You know, can you start even creating roles around people so that mm. this role suits this person's life? For example, in theory, you could start saying, okay, well, actually, let's use Laura. Would they need a role that would suit their lifestyle? You know, for example, if Laura wanted to move to Brisbane, could, because as a, in the past, as a company, you, you would not have Laura anymore. She would be gone mm. as with, she wouldn't be with the team because mm. she's in Brisbane. Don't do this, Laura, by the way. But what my point is now, <laughs> yeah. you're kind of like, oh, well, if Laura did go to Brisbane, could she still be part of the team? And the yeah, answer yeah. is pretty much yes. Mm. Or for let's say Alice wanted to, I don't know, get married, have have kids and do a family. Well, now you're a lot more able to create roles to suit the life or the needs of your team mm. and enable them to deliver equal value to the company while living uh, – while not interrupting the life that they want to live, so it, a, a company can be more um, flexible. Yeah, yeah definitely. There's, you know the, there's, the, there's the tools and the technology in yeah. place to facilitate that, there's which more, is good. Yeah, correct. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think if this struck us thirty years ago, this pandemic. I mean, how how would businesses operate? I mean, you know, it's just crazy, impossible. Gone. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think we would have been locked down. The media would yeah. have kept it on the hush because they would have known <laughs> they would have known we all been screwed. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I guess what's a I mean I know just back to the horrificness of the of the thing, what's a horrible story other than having to let people go that happens to you? What's something that 
that uh, saying negative you that experience you had right. during COVID. Yeah, I mean, other than the whole experience, which was which was horrific, I think that <laughs> yeah. we look, other think, than the whole thing. Yeah, you know, think, oh, yeah, you know, but look, I think that we had a um, look. We had some heading into it because we were sort of we saw the lockdowns happen really quickly and we were affected straight away. Our customers were affected. We saw mobility just go to you know, nearly zero. Um, we went to our stakeholders, you know, pretty quickly in terms of our suppliers and our um, and our investors and our financiers, and we sort of wanted to put it. We put a really good um, package together that we hope was a win-win for all all stakeholders, um, uh, customers included and, and team members included. Um, and part of that from our financiers was um, was we were or for, for our customers, they were in their house, locked in their house. So we had to do some drastic measures to – Customers uh, being the drivers. The drivers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we put a discount package where we would discount, you know, between 25 35%, a third of their fees to, uh, temporarily waived. Um, and we went to our financiers and said, look, you know, we need to, um, you know, have some arrangements in place for the next you know, three or six months. And everyone sort of signed up and said, yeah, great, you know, no worries, you're ahead of the curve uh, on this stuff. And then, uh, and then a couple of months later – one of them out of five or six financiers reneged. They reneged. They uh, yeah, they reneged on the deal, and they uh, they caused great difficulty for us, our customers, our, our team members. Um, it was it was very bad behaviour that they did, uh, and it was just unethical and I'd, immoral. I'd, I'd probably use the word unethical, and I think that um, you know with with, it, with the spirit of of uh, of whatever I was trying to do in COVID, I think that was pretty horrific. Um, and uh, but you look. You know, go back to the point about picking the right investors, right? Got to pick the right financiers and any other stakeholder in your business, right? And I think that we uh, – lesson learnt, you know, the, I suppose the true colours were shown um, and we've certainly uh, learnt, um, you know, you've got to – you know, whether it's investors, financiers, suppliers, stakeholders, et cetera, you've got to make sure they're the right partners, they're the right people, you know, with the right values, with the right ethics, right? So I think that's definitely a, a lesson. But, yeah, what, what happened to us in that particular – financier, um, you know, at the end of the day, those type of things, what goes around comes around. I'm sure, you know, you know, bad karma will, will, go, will go back to those guys in, in some way, shape or form. Mm. Um, and basically uh, yeah. just to clarify, they said, yep, that's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we can pass – you pass on the discounts to yeah, your yeah, yeah. Which, which uh, drivers. Yeah. And they said, yep, we'll pass it on to you. That's right. And then they randomly changed their mind. And said, "No, nope, give us the money or yeah, give yeah. us and the cars and, and or got, whatever." And got, and got very aggressive, yeah. And yeah. very yeah. aggressive in the middle yeah. of a pandemic when we're all locked down. Very, very aggressive, yeah. And yeah. Then, you know, all our you know, investors and stakeholders are like we've never seen anything like that before. That's just crazy. These Which, guys, these guys, these guys are crazy. Yeah, but also you don't like fuck them first of all. But yeah, you yeah. also don't know like what's going on to all these companies, yeah, like yeah. the huge forces of cash that are that yeah. are moving because of COVID and yeah. who they have to pay and yeah, yeah. They, they've probably got, you know. Well, what we found out, this company, they got four, but they got uh, discounts from their bank. So they, they so they did get the discounts. Correct, and then they weren't part, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. scumbags. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, we're talking a listed company that, you know, we're talking a, Re- It's supposed to be, to be reputable. Meant to be a reputable company, yeah. right, with, uh, you know, reputable, um, you know, you know, supposedly reputable, you know, directors and whatnot. But, yeah, I mean, like, you know, see, true colours came out, yeah. But, you see, that's the – you know what I hate about that is that just because a company's big doesn't mean it's bad. Mm. But big business has bad reputation and it's because when a company of that size, when one of them does something bad, for example, this company, whichever it may be, mm. when one of them does it bad, it just affects so many people that it gives the whole business beca- and then big business becomes the face of business because mm. it's you know they're all the brands you know 
And then business becomes bad. So then all business people, are, you know, they, they, there's not a positive sentiment around oh, yeah. business and yeah, business yeah. owners. When when people, like what I was saying before, when people lose their jobs, it's, oh, they lost their job. It's not, oh, that business owner is losing their business, trying to save the jobs of others and therefore has to make a horrible decision towards someone that they actually care about. Mm. You know, it shows the, the other perspective and it's because of unethical business done by by. I don't know, these large corporations. And that's a big rabbit hole we can get down. That's but, it. But, you know, but you've got to choose your partner. Everyone's got to choose, choose their partners, your partners. Right? You know, business, yeah. you know, business, you've got to choose your partner. Choose who you're doing business that's with. That's it. You've got to know. And, you know, obviously businesses that you partner with, they're made up of people. So you've got to know those yeah. people that are behind those businesses. Yeah. yeah. So and there's true. a lot of good people it's out like there as well. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of bad people yeah, out there It's like your friendship well. circle. Yeah, yeah. You choose who's in it. Yeah. I don't want to be friends with everyone. Yeah. There's some people who don't have – don't. I don't think that's a good person. Yeah, yeah, They don't align with me. You've got to do the same thing with business. Yeah. Oh man. Well, let's end it there because we're obviously way over time. Yeah. Um, but just after COVID, uh, what's the silver lining and kind of where what you know? I know obviously you know the business is incredible now. You're back in Australia, which yeah, is great yeah. for me because you live across the road. Yeah. And uh, we can hang out all the time. But but I guess what was the silver lining in your opinion that's come out of COVID for you well, look, as I an think, entrepreneur in your business? Yeah. Look, I think there's a lot of lessons learned. Which at the end of the day, you know, you're only as good as how much you know and how much you've learned. Um, and I think that we've got a, a, a better business than pre-COVID. I mean, a lot of lessons, a lot of pain to go through to get there. I and you remember. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I think we've got a, a better business um, with some great investors um, for the go forward. And we've got a huge, a bigger opportunity than pre-COVID as we get into electric vehicles. That's the, so that's the future yeah. of what yeah, you're Yeah, doing. We're, we're the a leading player in, uh, in providing electric vehicles, obviously in, for rideshare and delivery uh, platforms at the moment. But, yeah, now we've got this – a great business that's gone through a pandemic and if it can get through a pandemic, it can get know, through anything. you know, it's, uh, it, it's got, it got some strong foundations we've put in. And I think that now we're going into a huge opportunity. Uh, and I think, you know, to get, to get from there to here with, um, with what we've gone through and where we're at with the, with the stakeholders we've got uh, on board with all the lessons learned, we're in this fantastic opportunity uh, to really scale this business even further. Okay, so that's going to be the next episode. We're going to talk yeah. about your electric vehicles yeah. and what you're doing. Yeah, cool. Okay, sounds right. good. Yeah, I think we should do that. Yeah. yeah. And have you spoken to our member Tim Washington that owns Jet Charge? Which I, I think yeah. yeah. They're the largest charging electric vehicle charging company in the country or something like that? I think I so, yeah. They're a leading player. Yeah. 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 Are you guys going to do something together? We'll see what happens. Yeah. These, uh, you should because that'd yeah. be great cup story. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Cup facilitator. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. No, we're working on some stuff. Um, great, great business, great organization, done a great job, great opportunity ahead for him as well as we as we go into the electrification of vehicles in yeah, Australia. 100%. Yeah. I really love that guy yeah. uh, just as I love you. In fact, I was going to say to the start, but I mean, I meet a lot of smart people. It's basically my job. Um but I always tell everyone, you're one of the smartest of the smart, I would say, in terms of entrepreneurial, in terms of everything, really. You, you, you're an incredible, incredible human being. And I'm very, very privileged to have you as a friend and very proud to have you as a member. Um, and to our listeners, I hope you actually stayed tuned the whole time. I know it was a long episode, but it was totally worth it, I can assure you. Me personally, I'm going to hang up the mic, grab a beer and probably talk to Kingy for another four or five hours about uh, everything because uh, he's incredibly, incredibly smart and experienced. And if you want to find out more about Chris King and Splend, um, go to 
at www.cub.club forward slash podcast to find out more information about Kingy himself and, and tips and tricks and book recommendations. Kingy, thank you so much for coming back thank, on the show. Thanks, Dan. You're too kind as well. <laughs> you, may, you may be blush. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> anyway, Shucks. guys. Thanks, mate. No problem. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed the show.